What's your name? Brian Holman. How many years did you pitch professionally? Eleven. How many times have you had surgery in your life? Six. What's your name? David Holman. How many years have you pitched professionally? Eight years. How many times as a kid were you in the emergency room with a chance to die? Twice. Actually, I lied. I've had eight surgeries. <laughs> Coming up on this edition of Life Around the Seams podcast, we talked to former Major League pitcher Brian Holman and his son, David Holman, about life on the pitcher's mound when you're trying to get batters out and life in the hospital when your career or your life is in the hands of surgeons. This is Life Around the Seams. Former Major League pitcher Jim Bouton once wrote, You spend a good piece of your life gripping a baseball, and in the end, it turns out, it was the other way around all the time. Welcome to Life Around the Seams, a podcast about baseball people who have interesting stories from between the lines, and sometimes even more interesting stories outside the lines. Here's your host, Josh Sushan. All right, guys. Welcome to Albuquerque, New Mexico. Brian, welcome to the Press Box. David, and thanks for joining me here on uh, this podcast. Thank you. Great to be here. All right. So I'm probably going to start off most of the first part of this podcast talking to you, Brian. But David, if, you, if there's a question that you have or if there's an antidote that you know from your life, then by all means, like jump in. Because I'm kind of curious how much you know about your dad's career. So before we get started, how much, how much independent research have you done in your life on your dad's career? Honestly, it didn't, I didn't really look into it too much until I got into pro ball. And then riding on those long bus rides and staying in those hotels at the lower levels and stuff, like I respected him and appreciated him so much more. Like in, in high school and college and stuff, it was fun. You know, like, oh, your dad played in the big leagues. You know, that's awesome. But until you actually get into this lifestyle, I didn't really get to re- – I didn't get into, like, researching him. And, you know, if I had a bad outing, he'd be like, go look at my numbers in <laughs> short season or something, you know. Like, he'd be like, I was the same way. So – yeah, um, I've, I know quite a bit now, but when I initially, before I got into pro ball, I really didn't know much about his career. So we're going to find out just how much more you might learn about your dad's career in addition to your career as well. All right, Brian, so let's start off with who is Dick LeMay? So Dick LeMay is, uh, he, he recently just passed away, was my stepfather, and Dick was the scout for the Montreal Expos who originally signed me uh, to my first uh, professional contract when I was drafted out of high school. Your and then, stepfather signed you. So, But he wasn't my stepfather then, and then later on, about 12, 14 years later, at the National Baseball Congress Tournament, the NBC Tournament, Wichita, Kansas, he met my mom again, and they became friends, and ended up later getting married. So the man who signed me ended up becoming my, <laughs> my stepfather. So just another part of the big pitching family for the Holman family. I love it. All right, so let's start with the 1983 baseball draft. It's not on TV. The Internet doesn't exist yet. 
Back then, only the first round was even announced. How do you find out? Where are you? How do you find out that you were drafted by the Expos in the first round? So I was actually, I, I grew up part of my uh, young uh, life in Colorado, and then we, we moved to Wichita, Kansas. And so before the draft, I actually went to Colorado to visit my high school friends, and I, and I brought a bus back. And as I pulled up into the front of the house, my mom came running out of the front door with a Western like Western Union telegram <laughs> that she had received at the front door stating that the Montreal Expos had drafted me in the, in the first round, and I didn't even know the Expos were looking at me at the time. So you get drafted 16th overall. I was looking at some of the other names from that draft. How many other names do you remember from the 1983 first round? So I know that uh, Tim Belcher was the first pick that year, and um, he, was, he was picked by the Twins and later became a very good pitcher with the Dodgers, but they had... Uh, Roger Clemens and Calvin Schiraldi, and I know there were other ones I just can't remember. Kurt Stilwell went second. Jeff Kunkel went third. You went 16th. Roger Clemens, 19th overall. 26th was Dan Plesak. Very yep. good career. Yep. We see him yep. on MLB Network. Yep. How about this? In the ninth round, Glen Allen Hill was drafted. That's right. That's really? right. Yeah. yeah. And I, I played against that. Glen Allen through the minor leagues and in the big leagues. So you have a scholarship to the University of Nebraska. What are negotiations like back then? Do you even have an agent or what? I did not have an agent. Illegal. Yeah. <laughs> Do you have an advisor? I, I didn't even have an advisor. And, uh, and my, they came to my house. Uh, I wanted to play pro ball really bad. And the funny part was I had my the, – the, the college coach in Nebraska was there in my living room. He didn't want to let me get away. And they had two scouts for the Expos. Dick LeMay was one and Bob Oldis was another one. And we began the negotiation process. And I'm doing all the negotiation. I'm by myself. I'm 18 years old. and they. So they, wait, the University of Nebraska and the Montreal Expos are in the same room. Yeah, they are. And it's hilarious because they are going back and forth with one another on who was going to get me. And um, at one point, as they're negotiating, the Montreal scout, Bob Oldis, looks at at um, at the college coach and says if if he goes to Nebraska we'll just cry because it's the weather's cold there he'll end up hurting his arm and and John Sanders the Nebraska po coach pulls out a hanky and goes start crying he's coming to Nebraska and I'm thinking they're going to go to blows right in my living room and and it was just hilarious uh, at at that whole scene so as the night went on I think they went from sixty thousand to seventy thousand to eighty to ninety five or whatever and I. I had no idea what I was doing. I told them I wanted $150,000, and I'm 18 in the first-round pick, and they're going, where did you come up with that number? That's like crazy money. And I, So anyway, uh, as it came down to the end of the night, I just said, you know, I really want to play. They got Jim Fanning on the phone, who was the general manager of the Expos at the time, and I said, you know, Mr. Fanning, I love the game. I want to play professionally. been poor all my life, and, and I've got to have at least $100,000 I'm not going to sign. He literally said, done deal, you're signed. I said, well, I should ask for $150,000. <laughs> But anyway, and then, I and then I went off and started my professional career. So, I I what did the Nebraska coaches think? Like, well, were they like, hey, you know, we got a dealership in town. We can yeah. get you a car under the table. Or <laughs> they anything. never actually said that. The, the funny part was they had the top three recruit, pitching recruits in the country all signed in Nebraska, and every one of us ended up signing and playing professionally. So they had a, they had a good recruiting class but lost us all. Wow. Life as a college baseball coach. Yeah, tough, tough stuff. But I, was, I really wanted to play professionally, and, and that had that opportunity. Went, I had no idea how hard it was going to be or what I was getting in for. So, But, uh, but uh, my start of my career, I was 18 years old and had not a clue what I was about to get into. 
Well, let's get into some of it. Parts of five years in the minor leagues before you reach the major leagues. You had a couple of seasons that were very good. You had a few others. Statistically, there was one year you had more walks than innings pitched. Absolutely. You had an ERA over five. <laughs> On reflection, what were the lessons that you were learning? So, out of high school, I threw very hard, but I had no idea where the ball was going or how to throw strikes. I had never had a pitching lesson. I had never been taught. I just picked up my leg and threw it hard. And when I got into pro ball, next thing I know, I'm walking everybody. I'm behind the count. Every time I throw a ball down down in the strike zone, it gets hammered. So I, I had a tremendous amount of failure early on in my career. In fact, I was about the first three years after my career, I'm thinking maybe I made a mistake because this is not fun. I'm, I'm getting hammered. And um, uh, fortunately, uh, I got married and um, life changed abruptly. And we said we had to get on the on the right track here. And and uh, I started uh, to focus as much as I can and work as hard as I can. And fortunately, um, I turned it around and figured it out. I had hurt my arm early in my career, so my fastball went from in the mid 90s to the upper 80s, low 90s, and I had to learn how to pitch. And it was probably the best thing that happened because now I had to learn how to throw a uh, two-seam sinking fastball for strikes and throw change-ups and breaking balls, and and I learned how to pitch. And before too long, uh, I was a strike thrower. And coming up through the minor leagues, playing with Randy Johnson and Larry Walker and and all these guys that that were really good athletes we realized that that uh, being a good athlete was enough you had to work very hard and, and become a baseball player and a, and a pitcher we're recording this at beautiful isotopes park with this spectacular ballpark and there's a lot of other really good ballparks in the minor leagues what should we know what should David know about what the ballparks were like what the crowds were like in the early to mid 80s as you're making your way through the bush leagues well he's just spoiled I mean absolutely spoiled we laugh about that now the, the ballparks I mean in the minor leagues the the showers that we took and the ballparks we played in were just unbelievably bad and the hotels you stayed in and the bus trips but yet I look back at that those are some of my most fond memories of playing some of my best friends in in my life are the guys that I came up with the minor leagues with the ballparks were terrible uh, the money was terrible my first year in the minor leagues I made $600 a month that was the the minimum salary what's the food spread the food spread was whatever we got, so we didn't know if it was going to be fried chicken or hamburgers or bologna sandwiches. We didn't know. That was whatever the guy did, and for the most part, the food wasn't very good. Uh, and even when we got to the big leagues, it was a different time then. Um, uh, we didn't have nearly the amenities in the big leagues that they, that they do today. And, of course, the minor leagues, you walk in, and they have strength and conditioning coaches and middle strength coaches and, and all these coaches. And we didn't have any of that. You know, we had to figure out a lot of that on our own. But, um, but I learned a lot from that. And as a coach now and as a teacher and a pitching coach, and, and hopefully I'm able to share that with kids today. So you mentioned Larry Walker, Randy Johnson. I'm looking through some of your other minor league teammates, Norm Charlton, Cliff Young, and aging Pasquale Perez, Dennis Martinez, Rex Hudler. It's like my childhood baseball card collection coming to life. Uh, who are the teammates that awed you in the minors? Well, Randy uh, Johnson, obviously, Randy and I came up together, spent 10 years together as teammates, uh, came up through the Expos together, got to the big leagues together, were traded. Uh, we were both traded to Seattle together. And watching Randy when he was dominant was unreal, just absolute domination as as a player. Uh, watching Larry Walker play was, was incredible. Uh, watching Otis Nixon run was, watch him go get a ball in the outfield. And so when you're, when you're playing with them, you know, you're just blown away. Uh, 
and then and then when we got traded to Seattle, there was this young guy named Ken Griffey Jr. in center field, and some guy named Edgar Martinez at third, and this guy named Omar Vizquel at short. And then you really saw what incredible baseball players uh, they really were. Saturday, June twenty fifth, nineteen eighty eight, you made your major league debut at Olympic Stadium in Montreal. How are you told that you're going to the majors? So we we I had pitched uh, uh, in. Portland, Maine, against the Phillies in a Triple A game, and threw very well. And um, we went to uh, Richmond, Virginia, to play the Braves. And I remember walking into the to the clubhouse, and they called me into the office, and I'm going, you know, what did I do wrong? <laughs> and they said, "You're going to the big leagues to pitch uh, against the Pirates on Saturday." And I think very this was a Thursday. Yeah. Next thing I know, I'm standing at Olympic Stadium, and first guy I hit face was Barry Bonds, and I said, "Well, I guess I'm in the big leagues." <laughs> yep. Did you have a passport? I did not have a passport. In fact, we didn't even need passports back then. Really? Did not need passports. We need. We had a driver's license, and we'd go through security, and it was all set up through. Um, uh, they had it all. You know, you basically you never went through security. You went to the airplane, and so we had to go through customs and stuff. But we never had passports then. Oh, so in addition to Barry Bonds leading off, Jose Lind, Andy Van Slyke, Bobby Bonilla, Darnell Cole, Sid Bream, Mike Lavalle, Rafael Belliard. John Smiley's the opposing pitcher. Again, it's my baseball card collection coming to life. What are your memories of that Major League debut? My memory was I wasn't very good that day. I mean, I, was, I wasn't bad, but I made an error. I threw a ball wide to Tim Walk, and I was just really in awe. I just was like, this is incredible. And, and I, didn't, I didn't really trust who I was as a pitcher. And getting to the big leagues, I'm just like, you know, I'm here, but I'm not. It was like an out-of-body experience. Uh, but my second start, and this is what I really try to tell kids, my second start was against the Atlanta Braves, and Tom Glavin was on the mound. I didn't know who Tom Glavin was. And I get done warming up, and my pitching coach, Larry Bernard, stops me before I walk out. And he said, I'm going to ask you three questions. He said, one, do you believe that you have good stuff? I'm like, I don't know. I guess so. <laughs> he said, do you believe that you belong in the major leagues? And he said, do you believe that your stuff is good enough to get big league hitters? I said, I don't know. I'm 23 years old. I'm scared to death. I don't know what I'm supposed to answer. And he goes, well, you better wake up because you're getting ready to walk out on a major league field, stand on a major league mound and face major league hitters. You are in the major league, so let's go. And it really just clicked for me that I was a big league pitcher and, and went out and threw a good ball game. Yeah, you threw a five-hit shutout to beat the Braves. Was it after that start, or when did you go from, okay, I need to fake it until – I believe it in term, and then okay. I believe I have the stuff that I can get major league hitters out. Well, I was shocked that I threw a complete game shutout. I mean, I just went out and did my thing, and then after that, I think I really felt like I belong here. You know, I've worked hard, I've sacrificed, I've been up and down the minor leagues, and now I'm here, and I never want to go back. Now that I'm here, I want to do everything I can to stay in the big leagues, and and I just I just worked my tail off every day and and tried to stay here. And then uh, when we got traded to Seattle, it was probably the best thing that ever happened in my career. Before we talk about the Mariners, I'm not going to go through all of the starts in your rookie year, but I was looking at the starting pitchers that you win against: John Smiley, Tom Glavin, Hall of Famer, Joaquin Andahar, multiple All Star, Jack Armstrong, started an All Star game, Danny Jackson, Cy Young runner up, Jamie Moyer pitched forever, Jose De Leon, very good, Danny. Cox, World Series star, Doug Drabeck, won a Cy Young, uh, Jimmy Jones, I don't remember who he is, Tim Leary, very good career, Oral Hershiser won the Cy Young that year, Rick Russell started the All-Star game the next year, Sid Fernandez, World Series hero, Mike Dunn, first-round pick, Calvin Schiraldi, those are the opposing pitchers you <laughs> win against your rookie year. So that tells you that now you're in the big league, so you can 
can't you can't give up runs. You got to do everything you can because now you're facing big league pitchers and one run it could be a one run game and you just got to do everything you can to to keep your team. So I tried to break things down as simple as I could: throw strikes, get outs, keep your team in the game. You also started the game in which Oral Hershiser's consecutive inning streak began. It was like the last, I think it's the last four innings. He didn't give up a run, and then he went on the, the six straight shutouts after that. I did. And, you know, I didn't even know that until later on. And then I looked back, and he's like 59 scoreless innings, I believe, and I was pitching against him. And I had a really good game. I pitched great that day and ended up losing 4-2 to two to, to Hershiser. And then later on, I find out that, that you know, I was a little part of history. Not a lot, big part, but a little part. Anytime that I have an excuse to talk about the movie Bull Durham, I'm going to do so. Bull Durham comes out June 15th, 1988. That was 10 days before you were called up to the major league, so you were still in the minors. What are your memories about you and your teammates in this motion picture with Kevin Costner that's about minor league baseball? Because I was Luke Lelouch. <laughs> I was that guy, and Ralph Antone was... Um, was Kevin Costner in that movie. He he was a catcher that came up with me. He was an older catcher, and he was like my dad and my babysitter and everything at one time. He uh, he was there to keep me grounded and help me. He was my roommate, and he was just one of those guys that, that did that for me. So I was. I was Luke Lelouch. I couldn't throw a strike to save my life. I was nuts. I was crazy. I was wild, and, and he was just there to, to keep me grounded. So I, if I hadn't had him as a, as a catcher in the minor leagues, I don't know where I'd been. What was his name again? Ralph Anton. Ralph Antone. All right, May 25th, 1989, you were traded along with Gene Harris and Randy Johnson to the Mariners for Mike Campbell and Mark Langston. How do you find out about the trade? So we get done. I, I pitch in San Francisco on a Saturday night, and uh, the game is tied 2-2 two two going, I think, the eighth inning, and Will Clark hits a two-run home run off me with two outs. And we lose the game 4-2. Next day on Sunday, we play the Giants again. And there's some stirring. There's some talk about some weird things going on with the organization. They need a starting pitcher. And so I get, uh, we get done. We fly to San Diego. As I walk into um, uh, the hotel in San Diego, Dave Dombrowski's there. He's the general manager of the, of the Expos at the time. And he says, I need to talk to you. And so I go over, and he, he sits me down in the lobby, and he said, hey, listen, um, I want to let you know we've 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 uh, had a trade with the Seattle Mariners and you're involved. And he said we traded you for Mark Langston. And I and I, I remember saying, well, you didn't just trade me for Mark Langston. So what's the deal? And he goes, well, we traded you and Gene Harris and he kind of and Randy Johnson. <laughs> you know. And so I said, I think I said at the time that's that's not a good trade, knowing that you know I'd watched Randy come up and knew that if he ever put it together, he was just well, going to be amazing. It'll be history. Yeah, well, you know, now it is. But at the time, they didn't know. But I remember as as we flew to uh, 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 Seattle, my wife had told me, my wife Jamie said, you're going to get traded. I said, we're not going to get traded. They're not going to trade us. You know, we're the future coming. She goes, no, you're going to get traded. And sure enough, two days later, we get traded. And as we get to the Mariners, Jim Lefevre is there, and he he called me and Randy over, and he put a ball in our hand, and he said, you guys are going to pitch every fifth day. I don't care if you get your brains beat in. Just go do your job. And that was the greatest thing he could have told us because we just then took off and went in the starting rotation. Randy was at AAA at the time, right? Yes, sir. Okay. So Randy and Gene were at AAA, and so you guys all met. And we the all met, with the and we met in Milwaukee because we were playing the, the the Brewers. And Randy and Gene had been had made the team out of spring training, and they struggled a little bit. So so we went uh, they went down, and then we ended up going to uh, – 
uh, I was still in the big leagues, and then we got traded to Milwaukee. And the first night I got traded, I got a loss, and the next day we got in a huge brawl with the Brewers. <laughs> and I'm thinking, well, welcome to the American League, right? Who was the, the culprits of this brawl? So Billy Spire took out Dave Valley at home plate on a, on a really wide slide and took Val out. And the next thing you know, we're fighting. And Randy and I are looking at each other going, we just got here, and this is, we don't don't even know these guys, you know, and Harold Reynolds, and I look over, and Chris Basio's got Harold Reynolds by the neck, and it's a big brawl, and ever since that brawl, we fought with the Mariners, or the the Brewers, every year. Really? Some of the greatest brawls in baseball history. (laughs) All right, I I want to ask you, because we're going to start to get into shoulder problems that you had, which ultimately uh, sidelined your career, and uh, this is kind of where the... Baseball in the 80s compared to baseball nowadays with pitch counts. I see that in one start you threw 135 pitches. You had another start where you went eight and a third and walked seven. You had 127 pitches, 135, 130. Were you even aware? Did you care? What did pitch counts mean to you back then? I didn't care. I wanted the ball and I wanted to pitch, and I didn't care what was going on. I just wanted to pitch. And so I was probably my own worst enemy because I never told them that when I was hurting. And... Uh, my manager and my pitching coach, they just, they believed me. They trusted me. And, and I could throw into the the early 100s, 110, 120, 130, and still have, and still be effective. And so as my career, as I look back, I threw a lot of games where I, I threw complete games and threw a lot of pitches. And that probably led to some of the issues I had with my arm. Final start in 1989. You go the distance, you beat the Indians, and the pitcher that you beat was Bud Black. Isn't that crazy? Yep. Bud Black, yep. Royals? Yep. Oh, Indians, actually. Yeah, he was at the Indians, Indians at, the at the time. And so, oh, oh, yeah, I also wanted to ask you, okay, 1989 is Ken Griffey Jr.'s rookie year. You mentioned him earlier. He's 19 years old. Your memories of 19-year-old Ken Griffey Jr.? So we get traded, and I didn't really know who Jr. was. He had made the team in April out of spring training, and so we, we got there in, in June, no, May. And so he'd only been in the big leagues a couple, a couple months but watching him go after a ball at 19 years old was unreal. I mean, to watch that kid be that good at that age, and yet he was a kid. He was just a kid. He just goofed around and had fun and went to play video games and laughed and was just a, a teenager, basically. And a teenager in a man's body, it was incredible. And to watch him play every day was, was a treat. Did you think this guy's going to be in the Hall of Fame at age 19 or 20 or 21? Well, no, not at the time. Or, or Randy. I mean, we didn't know. We were really young. We had such a young team. And uh, we ended up, we just had no idea that, you know, we knew he was good. But, you know, it. It, it takes so much work, and there's so many things that have to happen in order to, to be in the Hall of Fame. So, you know, at that time, you're young. You're just playing the game and having fun, and hopefully hopefully you do well. All right. April 20th, 1990. It's the third start of the year for you. You're facing the defending World Series champion Oakland A's in Oakland. You faced them in your previous start in Seattle. You allowed three runs in seven innings. Took the loss. Bob Welch threw a shutout. It's a Friday night. It's the first game of the series. What do you remember about that morning, that afternoon, warming up in the bullpen before that start, any memories? Well, the start before when I lost, I had really good stuff. I was, I was, I felt really good. I had as good a stuff as I'd had as a as a professional pitcher and lost to to Oakland, and they had a good lineup. And so when I go out to warm up the next uh, next start in Oakland, I did not have good stuff. I just didn't feel good. I I had uh, I that day had gone and worked with some uh, some underprivileged kids in a youth clinic and just had fun and was just enjoying my day. But when I got to the ballpark, 
uh, everything seemed good until I started warming up, and I just didn't have anything. And I'm I'm throwing and and starting to warm up. I was so bad warming up that my own relievers were taking bets on how long I was going to last and who the first reliever was going to be in the game. And so I go back as I'm warming up to what I remember uh, keeping the game simple: throw first pitch strikes, get ahead, work for ground balls, throw inside, don't hang a slider to Conseco or McGuire, those <laughs> types of things, you know. And I'm telling myself. And so when I go out for the game, I just start working for outs i didn't care what my velocity i didn't care about anything else just work for outs and the next thing you know uh getting pretty close yeah so before we start talking about how close you got let's also set the stage of what's going on in your life david was born may 31st so that means your wife is what eight months pregnant yeah and your older son is what two three years old three years three years old yep. and where's your wife and and your son at at this day. Are so they back home? They're back home in Kansas. See, she's at, at uh, our, her mom and dad's house, uh, very pregnant, in the reclining chair with her feet up, watching the game on TV, and uh, and I'm I'm pitching. And, of course, my son, Scott's with them at that time. And, and so uh, I'm sure she was having a little bit of a... a a sensation of this is crazy, you know, and I didn't want her going into labor right there, obviously. But, but um, so, so they're home, and, and we're in Oakland, and um, just doing my thing, and not even I never even thought for a second that I had a perfect game going until after the seventh inning. After the seventh inning. Okay, so in the seventh, you get Ricky Henderson, Stan Javier, and Jose Canseco. So now you got six outs to go, and that's when you started to really think about it. So as I, I struck out Jose Canseco for the third out, and I ran off the field, and I got into the dugout, and as soon as I got in the dugout, everybody got away from me. Nobody would look at me or talk to me, give me a drink of water or a towel, and I'm like, what is wrong with everybody? And then I looked at the scoreboard, and then I'm like, is that right? You know, there's zeros all the way across, and not only are there zeros, not a single... Uh, a has reached first base, not on a walk or anything, and and I wasn't nervous at all until I looked and went, "Wow!" Now I start getting a little nervous, mm-hmm. right? And um, and it just started sinking in, kind of what actually was going on at the time. Then in the eighth inning, you get Mark McGuire, Ron Hassey, and Terry Steinbach, and now you're three outs away. However. For some reason, why in the world did you bat in the top of the ninth inning? This is a designated hitter league. Dumb. So uh, I didn't want to hit. Obviously, you know, I'm not, I'm not near as good a hitter as David is. So, <laughs> but but um, uh, they did a double switch and they brought Pete O'Brien into first and put Henry Cotto in right, and so we lost the DH. So I wasn't supposed to hit to like the sixth or seventh batter in that inning, and we ended up scoring four runs, and we had uh, men on first and second. And Henry Cotto's up, and I'm yelling at Henry from the from the on deck circle. Do not walk. <laughs> Get out, and he so he walks, and he looks at me right there. I'm so sorry, you know, I can't get out. So I had to hit, and uh, in in the uh, the top of the top of the ninth. All right, so now the bottom of the ninth. Pinch hitter Felix Jose, you retire him. You get Walt Weiss out. You're one out away. So one out away, and and we laugh because I talk about this all the time. I'm one away, and I'm standing there, and I'm at literally telling myself, "This is pretty great. I'm going to be in the Hall of Fame. They're going to want my." My jersey and my hat and my jock and my glove and my underwear and they're going to wreck this this uh, locker in Cooperstown and I'm going to be immortalized for all time and and I'm thinking this is incredible and then 43,000 people in Oakland stood up and started cheering and when you're when you're an opposing player and you're standing on the mound and all these people are cheering for you it's it's like goosebumps it sounds like a 747 going over your head and the entire place is shaking and then they announce now batting number 44 Ken Phelps. And Ken Phelps is not a first-pitch fastball hitter, and I just threw one right there to get a first-pitch strike, and he sw- he just swung as hard as he could and, and hit a home run and you know ruined the perfect game, and that was the last home run he hit in the big leagues. 
Wow. That was his last home last run. Last home run. And then the next gap was Ricky Henderson. I struck him out, and the game was over. Now, text messaging doesn't exist. What's what's the clubhouse like? Obviously, the local press was talking to you. What's the rest of that night like for you? So lots of interviews and lots of fun, and, and I had great teammates, and we were laughing about it and having a good time. And But, you know, you really start to, to, to think about it when you get back to your hotel, and you're sitting there, and, and about 4 in the morning, you can't sleep. You're so wired. And about 4 in the morning, I, I sat up in bed and just yelled as loud as I could, thinking that's the only time I'm ever going to get it, and I just blew this. But um, what a great memory, and, and um, I think I'm probably more well-known today for not getting it as I would if I'd have gotten it. I think the most famous two almost perfect games are yours and Armando Galarraga's. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, I don't know if we'd be sitting here talking. The only difference is the Mariners didn't buy me a Corvette for not getting mine. <laughs> He got a Corvette? <laughs> yeah, the, the, the Tigers bought him a Corvette. That was great. So, All right, so the next morning at the team hotel, I was one of those really obnoxious kids that went to the A's game almost every day and got balls and batting practice and got autographs. And then I got really obnoxious and started showing up at the team hotel along with my friends. I got your autograph the next morning. No way. Yes, I did. But I was nice probably gave it to yes. you, I would hope. Yes, good, you did. Uh, I remember That's hilarious. It, was, it was at the, uh, the Oakland Hilton, which is real yep. close to the airport, and there was like the main lobby, and they, they kicked the kids out. We had to sit on these wooden benches, but then you'd walk across a couple of like roads, and there was a place to go eat over there. So it was easy to pick off players and get autographs as they're coming back. And I remember there was some just random dude who was staying at the hotel, and he was like, don't you kids know what he did last night? We're like, yeah, of course. We're not idiots. Of course. Why do you think we want his autograph? We know what he did last <laughs> That's night. That's hilarious. I was trying to find it, and I could not find it this morning. Maybe I sold it. I don't know. Yeah, you, you probably got about a buck for it, I'm sure, but uh, that's awesome. I spent a long time trying to. So thank you for signing the autograph for me the no, next morning. You're more than happy. Welcome to. Uh, so for the rest of 1990 and 1991, you pretty much took the ball every five days, gave the Mariners a chance to win, almost 200 innings every year. Your ERA, a little over three and a half one year, just barely over four. The Mariners are still four or five years away from making the playoffs at this point. What do you kind of look back on and say, okay, I'm proud of what I did 1990-1991? Well, I know that 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 team, we were so young, but we we were building a really good foundation uh, for a team that would last a long time. I mean... We had some uh, some very very good players and some and a and a very good pitching staff. You know, Eric Hansen was on that staff and Randy obviously and and Billy Swift and and we had a good staff. And so I was very fortunate. And I I just I think as a starting pitcher, I wanted the ball and I always wanted to go seven innings. If I didn't go seven innings, I just felt like I didn't I didn't do my job and keep the team in the game. And um, I I just never wanted to come off the mound. It was just the 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 joy of throwing a baseball to big league hitters is unbelievable just the competition of being able to go out there it's it's just incredible so i love that and i never wanted to give that up and so even when i was in pain and hurting and knew something was probably wrong i didn't want to stop pitching interesting and i just kept going and so at the end of the 91 season i went in to get a simple uh, arthroscope done on my shoulder and found out that i had a lot of damage in my shoulder and and uh they had to do a complete reconstruction on my shoulder and and my career was over did that go back to you mentioned earlier in your minor league career when you started having arm problems do you think it went all the way back there you know i never really had shoulder problems i had some elbow problems and i had uh, had strained uh, my uh my ucl early on in my career but it i didn't require surgery or anything and i never had a lot of problems with my my elbow but i think 
just we were just different back then. We threw a lot of pitches. We played. We always tried to throw complete games. Uh, it's a little different now, but I think all those years of throwing a ball, even from the time I was younger, is before I played pro ball, I just had a lot of wear and tear on my arm. And by the time I was, you know, 26, 27 years old, I had thrown a lot of pitches and pitched a lot of innings. And I just think over time, my my shoulder just gave out, and and uh, that was it. Your younger brother, Brad, signed with the Mariners in 1991. How often were you too able to cross paths in spring training or anywhere as part of the Mariners organization? A lot. I mean, I saw him, and we saw him uh, every spring and spent time with him. And then, of course, in 1993, he got called up to big leagues, and I was in the big leagues. And so we, the first picture we ever took is he and I standing uh, side by side during the national anthem. And you see Holman 36 and Holman 38 on our backs, and that's a pretty special moment. That's pretty cool. Yeah. That's pretty awesome. How many total surgeries ended up happening on your shoulder? Was it just the one, or was there some cleanups or others to try to fix things? So I had three total uh, surgeries on my shoulder, the major surgery and then two more uh, scopes to try to fix it. And Dr. Job did two of my shoulders, and one, and he did my elbow. So I had my elbow done by by the best surgeon there was. And then Dr. Andrews did my, my third shoulder operation, and it still just wouldn't work. That back then the the capsule reconstructions that they do were not an exact science they just couldn't determine exactly what they needed to do for the shoulder so um, unfortunately it was probably tightened too tight and I just could not get it to the point where it was loose enough and I kept having impingements and my rotator cuff kept getting inflamed and I just could not throw through it and it was just real painful and I just had to make the decision that I was never going to pitch at that level again so now what you've got a family you've got two kids now what so you know, we're sitting there in Bothell, Washington, and uh, I remember when I had to announce my retirement, there was one one television camera, there was one reporter, they came to our living room, and they were sitting in the living room and, and interviewing me and said, you know, uh, I've got to retire, I'm done with baseball, and this is the hardest thing that, that we've ever gone through, and if we can get through this, we can get through anything, and you know, obviously little did we know we were going to have some, some family challenges coming up. Before we get to those family challenges, are you a fan of the TV show Seinfeld? I love Seinfeld. One of my favorite shows. So when George's dad says, how could you trade Ken Phelps for Jay Buhner? What did you think? <laughs> One of the best lines ever. Because I played with Jay all those years. And, of course, Phelps hit the home run off of me. And, and that's just, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not part of history, but I kind of am part of the Seinfeld <laughs> history. Because nobody, nobody knows that, but I was a, a teammate. The, the Yankees might have made that trade because of that home run. Oh, I don't, I don't think so. But <laughs> It'd be a good story. Yeah. All right, David, you're eight years old. And you decide to go snowboarding with your friends. Tell us who the friends are and where you guys go. Uh, it was my brother and uh, Mason and Tug, whatever. Like two of my buddies, and one was my brother's age, one was my age. And uh, their mom took us up to Snoqualmie Pass, just outside of Seattle. And uh, yeah, we just went snowboarding. I started snowboarding when I was like five or six years old, and I was good. Like I'm not. Just you were good. You're a little just, shredder. <laughs> yeah, I, I didn't care. Like I was fearless. So you knew what you were doing. Yeah, I was fearless, and I just flew down the mountain, and so they didn't think anything of it. And yeah, I mean, it wasn't. A, it was like a normal day. Everything was fine. But it turned out to not be a normal day. You fell off the ski lift. Mm -hmm. What happened? Uh, there was it was a brand new quad chairlift, and the the bar that you hold on to, whatever goes over it, goes over you. And there was a new thing where like you can rest your your skis or your snowboard on or whatever when you're riding up the the lift and in a, in a, when you're on a snowboard you have one foot strapped into the binding and I remember it was an icy day kind of 
gross and sleety. And I like leaned forward. We were at the highest point, right about to get off. We just took the the strap off or whatever it is, and I leaned forward to tell my brother some one of them something, and I just like fell off. I mean, I was eight years old and didn't really think anything of it. And I I remember falling, landing, and landing right on my back, and my left leg was behind my body because it wasn't the leg that was strapped in or to the binding. And I remember just waking up and yelling, "Mom!" <laughs> Seriously. Um, but yeah, that's yeah, all I remember about that part. You suffered a broken femur, broken wrist, had a concussion, a lacerated kidney, and a lacerated liver. How do you guys find out as parents? So here we are uh, celebrating our 13th wedding anniversary. And the, the boys went up skiing, and, and my daughter was with some friends, and we were just kind of hanging out, enjoying the day. We went and did a little shopping, and we're just kind of having fun, and my phone rings. And... When I answer the phone, there's a very frantic mom on the other end and crying and, and just losing it. And I'm trying to get her to to calm down and tell me what's going on. And uh, all I got really out of her was David chairlift fell. And then another friend called us and said, this is what's going on. So we, of course, get in the in our suburban and we're doing a hundred miles an hour, uh, to try to get to him. And he, they, he had sat in a, a an ambulance for a long time. They weren't sure how bad he was hurt, and they didn't want to take the ambulance off the mountain, so they leave him there until they were going to get another ambulance to take him. Then they determined he's hurt. You know, his femur was bro- broken in four places, and he had a collapsed lung and a hole in his lung. He had a lot of internal injuries they didn't know about. So they get him to Overlake Hospital, and we are flying there. And I hope I don't get emotional on this. But when we get into the emergency room, uh, my wife Jamie and I just we run past everybody. And the mom who was with him literally says, and that would be the parents. Because we just flew, flew right back. And they're going, you can't go back there. And we're like, we just went back anyway. And there he was. And I I remember as soon as he saw us, the relief on his face that, thank goodness, my parents are here. you know. And then we started evaluating all of his injuries and what was wrong and what we had to do. And we just went into... My wrist was killing me. Yeah, his wrist was killing him. And it wasn't even stabilized. And I look at the doctor... And I said, his wrist is broken. And the doctor goes, oh, no, it's not. I go, his wrist is broken. So I grab hold of it and hold it and stabilize it. You know, and we look at the the x-rays, and his leg is just shattered. And so uh, they start doing that. But they said, he's he's hurt too bad now, and we, we can't treat him here. We have to take him to Harborview Medical Center. And then we, we headed that way for it to a big trauma unit. How long in all were you in the hospital, David? Ooh, I don't know. I mean... I feel like my childhood was spent in the hospital. <laughs> nothing, nothing against my parents or anything, but um, I was I re- initially I was in there for a while. Yeah, because he because he had all these injuries, and then they had to wa- and and he had a concussion. So when they first did the CT scan after his fall, the concussion, um, they they saw a little spot on his brain, and that's when they said, you know, it looks like he might have a bleed or something on his brain from from the that's fall. And then after he gets his femur set and gets everything done. And I'm telling the funny part is I'm telling the, it's not funny, but I'm telling the doctors he's going to be a major league baseball player one day. So you better make sure you fix this right and do all this. And I'm going to say, you know, do I need to go in the hospital the, to the operating room with him and do it right? Anyway, they were great. So they, they said, um, we're going to do this MRI on his brain. And, uh, once, once they did the MRI, they came out and we were standing there and the, and the radiologist said, we're sorry to tell you this, but David has a brain tumor. So you go into the hospital because you fell from a chairlift and that's how you find out that you have a brain tumor as well. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, when I found out about the brain tumor, obviously that's, I'm still eight years old. And I think it, at that point in my life, I was like, 
so what? You know, like I just, I've been through this, I've been through that. Like it doesn't matter. Like bring it on, kind of. And I mean, my lifestyle, I mean, my childhood was normal, but it was also incredibly not normal. So at the time when they, when I was told I had a brain tumor, whatever, we didn't do anything about it. We waited three years, or whatever. And by the time I was 11, they said it's growing. Like we probably need to take care of it. Um, and I know I remember being scared about that just because that's someone in your in your brain, you know. But um, even like today, even nowadays, like if I'm pitching or if I give a couple hits or a home run or whatever, like you know, it sounds kind of like cliche, but I can keep things in perspective and look back and be like, this is nothing. Like the guy hit a ball off you. Like you've had brain surgery, you know, you've lost loved ones or whatever. You've broken femurs, like. I think that's that's how I try to live life now is just keep everything in perspective. In between the chairlift accident and finding out about the brain tumor, you said it was about three years. Were you ever ever able to get back to being quote normal kid who's able to play with his friends and play sports and go to school, or was it, or were you still constantly recovering? Yeah, I think it was uh, a year after my leg surgery, or whatever. I got my first game, my first pitch. I hit a home run. Well, it was more than that. He he gets back and he'd been rehabbing this whole time, and this was such a, a fun thing because because he didn't um, he just loved baseball from the time he was little, and he wanted to play catch all the time and throw. So he rehabs all this back. He misses over a year, and when he first you know comes back, he's not he hadn't played very much. And then right before the season starts, he's so excited he gets strep throat and mono. So now for six weeks he can't do anything. He's just the poor kid's just devastated. So he finally gets back to his very first game, and we go to the game obviously. And he gets up, and everybody's there cheering because he's come back from so many things. And uh, and the very first pitch he sees, he hits a home run over the center field fence. So that was a pretty cool moment. Like nine years older, and you can tell you can you can still hit. Yeah, <laughs> I hold on to the bat. Yeah. So before you go in for brain surgery you take a trip to Safeco Field what do you do at Safeco Field I got a Jay Buhner head shave um yeah my dad I think I don't know if you called him or Rick or whoever but we set it up and I remember Brett Boone was in there with us and Edgar and Lupinella and and all those guys yeah and we went to the game either that night before or the night the night of because I remember I had two friends with me and they both got their head shaved with me just to like support um, and was this in the clubhouse in the dugout? Where was this at? It was right outside, like the dugout lead going into the clubhouse in this little room. It's like a I don't know if it's like a snack room or whatever. It was like kind of like a little hangout room before the dugout. And yeah, they they sat me down, shaved our heads real quick, and well, there's a little more spe- of the story. Well, they made it special. Yeah, they, they made it special because David, from the time he was little, was in the locker room. So and he's in diapers as he could walk. He's in the locker room. So Randy Randy Johnson's messing with him, and Jay Buner and Harold Reynolds and all these guys grew up. David grew up with them, and so when I called him and said, "This is what's going on," you know, they. It was like his kid. They were just they were shocked that he was going to have to have this brain surgery. So they said, "Hey, we got to. He's got to have his head shaved anyway. So let's let's make it let's make it something special and something to to remember." So of course we go in and he had long hair and Jay Buner shaved a strip right down his head and his hair went like that. And he's like, "We should leave it this way." And and they they were tremendous. They they were great guys that that knew he was a scared little boy and they were going to try to help him through it. And uh, and they were they were tremendous. Just how scared were you, David? I don't think I really, like, knew. Like, I didn't know how to grasp it, really. I knew maybe, like, from, like, the concern on my parents' faces when the doctor and doctor's faces and stuff that I was like, you know, that ain't good. But, um, 
Yeah, I don't know if I was like. I was kind of just like, whatever. Like, if this is what I have to do, I have to do it. You know. We we looked at uh, when the doctor told us. The doctor said we're just going to leave it until we know for certain that it's growing. It, it was a benign tumor, but it was located in his right frontal lobe and his motor strip. Uh, fine motor skills. So so the fine motor so isn't a dangerous place. It was a tricky place. And so when they came in and said, "Hey, your brain tumor's growing, and we have to get it removed." You know that's that's kind of scary stuff, and and then um, and then they went and had the surgery. How do you know? How long does it take before you know they did they did it right? They did the surgery right. Well, the scary part was woke up, was, up. Woke up <laughs> and and he was okay, but the surgery was compl- there were complications. So when he woke up, he was paralyzed on his entire left well, side. Well, they asked they asked me an eight year old no eleven year old boy yeah if if I could be awake during it. Like, I would be numb, I wouldn't feel anything, but they wanted to be able to, like, talk to me and be like, hey, can you move your left hand or move this, you know? And at the time, I was just a kid, and I was like, no, like, I don't, I don't want to <laughs> do be that. awake in this. Yeah. And I've always wondered if, if I was awake, because I still have, like, paralysis on my left side, and I always wonder, like, if I was awake or they were to communicate, would it have made a difference? And I think maybe it would have, but I, I was, you know, 11 years old, and I was like, there's no way I want to, like, be looking up and see a guy above me, like, in my brain, mm-hmm. like... That have, that have been too much. So they so, did the surgery yeah. with me asleep the whole time, and I remember the doctor woke in. And he's like, "Well, he's got you know, he's not gonna be able to move his left side, or whatever." And I was like, "This one." And yeah. I threw up, I threw up my left arm, and yeah. they're like, "Okay, never mind." But yeah, but he had to he had to do a lot of re- before the surgery. We actually got hold of Ben Carson in at Johns Hopkins. The Ben Carson. The Ben Carson. Yeah. The one who we were, ran we were, for president. Yes, yeah. Yeah. Okay. We were gonna go to the best surgeon in the plant. And Ben Carson said, if it was my son, I would have Dr. Richard Ellen Bogan do my son's surgery in Seattle, who is who did David's surgery. And when Richard came out, I said, you know, there's just complications. It was bigger than we thought. It was more in, invasive than we than we first believed. And so when he woke up, he, he had paralysis on his left side, and he had to spend a lot of time rehabbing that back, just like he'd had a stroke. Meanwhile, your daughter Cassidy is going through leukemia. Yep. Uh, at one time, David is dealing with this, and then uh, our daughter Cassie gets leukemia. So we we are living in Children's That's Hospital, what I meant, but yeah, living there, and uh, she's battling leukemia, and he's battling all that we go through. And then, for some reason, I had a valve and my heart start leaking from a viral infection, so I had to have open heart surgery, and all this was going on at one time. And so, you know, when you have the, the the scariest thing in the world for a parent is to have your kids sick. And we tell people all the time, it doesn't matter whether you're a major league baseball player or, or whoever you are, you're not immune from your kids getting sick or having issues. And so we're dealing with life-threatening issues with two of our children. And, and then this, I come down with this. And so now our family's just getting hammered. So I think for us, the, we keep baseball in perspective. It's a game. It's a fun game, but it's not life and death. We've we've dealt with life and death. Tell me about your wife, the healthy one, and what she did and what she meant to the family. Well, she was amazing. I mean, she when you think about the amount of time uh, that we spent in hospitals, we also have two other healthy kids. So we're trying to to take care of them. So she became not only mom but nurse. Uh, protector, taking care of the family. I mean, she she did an amazing job at doing all that. And uh, and the whole time, she's a mom, so she's scared to death, you know. And we lived in hospitals, and and she always said that she, you know, she did okay until she found out I was sick, and then that was tough because now 
her partner was sick and what was she going to do if something happened to me but she she did an amazing job she's a she's a great wife a great lady uh love her to pieces and she um went through all the minor leagues with me and all the stuff that we went through together so uh we just you know we we call it pony up let's go and and get with it we got to battle through this so you survive obviously david you survive for cassidy six years that she fought and fought and fought but ultimately leukemia won that battle it did and um she was tough she was a tough kid and just an amazing kid and we all loved her dearly and and uh she was special. I mean, all your kids are special, but she, she was, was never a, not like happy. Had, yeah, she never, no matter what she was going through, she could be on her last breath, and she would bring joy to the room. It was crazy. I never met anyone. It's like an, it was like infectious. And I've, we had we adopted her from the Marshall Islands down, you know, kind of like Guam, South um, Pacific, South Pacific. Yeah, and she, I mean, seeing what she came from and it was just nothing. So I mean, for her to have that joy and. She, there really, there truly was something special about her. In fact, she told us on one, more than one occasion, sick, you know, no hair, going through many rounds of chemo, Huge cheeks, just yeah. struggling. And she'd say, you know, I, I would rather be sick and have a family than be well and not have a family. Oh. And she yeah. loved her family. I mean, she loved her sister. She loved, she loved David. I mean, she, she thought David was the greatest thing in the world. And we got pictures of her just clinging to him when he was little. And, um, and so. You know that that those are hard things. You know, you bury a child; it's it's beyond hard, and it it really puts this baseball life and all these things uh, in perspective really fast. Do you ever think why did why her and not me? Well, I think that you know you can always ask that question. I, I mean, yeah, why you know why would I be okay from a heart? surgery and and she was such a great little kid and why why would she die early and i don't think there's like a there's no real re- reason or right answer to that because you know you see some terrible human beings in this world that have done such unspeakable things and they are prosperous and happy and live to be 90 years old and you see people like cassidy who was this loving and infectious joyous spirit that made everyone happy and she gets taken so like when I was a kid, especially 16, I think I was 16 when she passed away. I mean, I was just mad all the time and didn't understand. And, you know, you can ask why and be pissed off as much as you want, but it doesn't fix anything. I think there's just some things that we won't have answers to uh, until someday we see her again in heaven. And then we'll know the reasons that they've happened and the things that went on. And we don't know to this day. But we, our family's kind of a little different. We put things, we try to put things in two categories, things that matter and things that don't. And uh, there's a lot of things in the world that don't matter, that, that you just don't freak out or get upset over. And uh, people matter and stuff don't. So we, we try to put that in those categories. And and uh, being proud of my kids for battling through that and dealing with it, it's a, it was a tough growing-up period. You know, we missed a lot of stuff. We spent many and many a holidays, uh, Thanksgivings, birthdays uh, in hospitals. And and they were they were happy to do it. They wanted to be with their their, their sister and or one and, parent was at yeah. home with the healthy healthy kids, whatever. And one parent was at the hospital staying overnight. But and it was just nonstop. I'm sure it's a pretty surreal feeling surreal feeling when you watch me pitching this ballpark. Well, it is. Like, I looking mean, back at all the stuff I've been through, sometimes you don't. Sometimes you just forget about it. But I know when they were playing. You know, we came out to national watch him pitch, and they're playing the national anthem, and you know, Jamie and I are. Stand on the mound. Choked up. I mean, you you're watching that after all that he's gone through and how 
how he's battled and 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 like I said, he's he's pretty humble about that. He doesn't talk about it very much, and so and and I think at times he'd rather not because he he just wants to be like everybody else, and and he is. But he's worked very hard, and not only has he had a lot of uh, adversity in life. But on the baseball field, I mean, baseball is a tough, tough game. And to get to the AAA level takes a lot of failure and a lot of grinding and a lot of being able to deal with that stuff. And, and uh, you know, we can be we, – we're proud parents, obviously. All right, so let's talk about your career, David. Draft day, much different round than your dad's. Yeah. 50th round. Tell us about draft day. Well, I was drafted out of high school initially. I had no idea. They called you to tell mm-hmm. – The Braves 40, drafted him. 48th round or something. <laughs> And I, in high school, I was, like, skinny, skinny, skinny. And I, I would throw one at, you know, around 90 miles an hour, and one might have been 82 the next one. Like, I had no idea, and I was all over the place. And then, um, yeah, I went to junior college for a little bit. Then I went to division – got drafted both years out of that and then went to a division two that was number one in the nation. And I just wanted to play. Like, I was I was going to go to, like, Oregon State and, like, Marshall and KU, K-State, all these schools and stuff. But I was like, I'm just going to go play. And I ended up having – a terrible year at Emporia State University, but I had all the tools and was had the last name and was projectable. So the Mariners were like, "Hey, would you know, would this kid want a shot?" And it sounds it sounds weird because I never like let his accolades or my uncle's accolades like really affect me. But growing up in a small town and being in Kansas, like it always did. Like it didn't matter if I went 0 for 4 on some team, it'd be like, "Well, he's just here," because you know, like that's how, that's how I felt. I don't know if people actually said that. I'm sure well, they you're did. You're a good player, so I know, <laughs> I know, but like, just like that insecurity or whatever as a kid kicked in or whatever. But when I first signed, like, yeah, my dad played for the Mariners and uncle and everything, but, like, no one really knew that. You know, going in a small town, everyone knows everything. But when I first signed, I was, I was as a free agent because I didn't ever sign when I got drafted. I just went in there and I was like, let's just have fun with this, you know. And that was eight, eight or nine years ago now. And How many years into your professional career did you feel like, I do belong here, I have the stuff, I have the talent? It's probably not until low A. Um, I had a good year, my first year in rookie ball. I mean, it was up and down. I had no idea what I was doing. I was starting to get a little better stuff towards the end of the the season, and then I didn't make a team next spring training. Had to wait and go to extended, and then I went to Pulaski, Virginia, for short season uh, A ball, um, advanced rookie ball, advanced rookie ball, and I somehow pitched myself into being like the closer in rookie, advanced rookie ball. And at that time, I was pretty good but like the competition there is nothing then I got called up to Everett Aquasox in short season A and I was like okay like maybe I'm okay but then when I made a team made the low A team out of spring training and then I became a starter like halfway through the year I don't know and that's when I started I was like okay maybe I'm good like I mean there was guys like Carlos Correa and Lance McCullers and Vincent Velasquez and uh, Robert Stevenson I remember that guy like oh, there was there was some big time names Byron Buxton I remember Byron Buxton being able to play hit to my first baseman and I went to cover and he flew right by me and I was like what just, <laughs> what just happened but I remember like I was pitching against those guys going seven innings six innings eight innings nine innings complete game 18 ground balls I threw one game in an hour and 13 minutes or an hour and a half or something it was stupid and I saw the guy at the bar at the umpire at the bar and he bought me a drink because he said, that's, the, that's the quickest game I've ever played <laughs> so after that after low A when I was starting I was like I, I maybe I could maybe I could do something with this but then your elbow starts barking yeah, that was in – I went to Australia right after low wave because I had, had like 110 innings or something. And I think the Mariners partially wanted to see 
it's like, okay, is this kid like the real deal? Like, you know, Australia, I'll be the first one to tell you, it's like probably high, comparable to high. But I think they just wanted me to go down there and get 30, 40 more innings and just see if I was like legit or not. So I went down there, had had the time of my life. It was awesome. But yeah, my elbow, my pitching coach at the time was like, he's like, if I told you where your arm slide was right now, you'd throw up. And I was like, what? Because I'm normally like high three quarters and he's like, you're throwing like almost sidearm. But I didn't know. I was like compensating for it. Um, yeah, and I kept barking and barking. I didn't think anything of it. Then I went, they I called the Mariners and they were like, I, I something's wrong. And they got me on the next flight out. They took care of me. Um, then I tried, I threw some bullpens back home and like, hey, my elbow's still messed up. And they they brought me into Arizona, um, take a look at it. And, you know, they didn't really do anything, just rehab. And I went and pitched in high, about 60 innings in high. Pitched pretty well for being in high desert. Yeah, that's a miserable place to pitch. It's the ball flies. I think it's I think it's worse in here by by a lot. Um, and then yeah, my elbow was messed up again, and did PRP injections, and that didn't do anything. And then finally, I had Tommy John. And unfortunate, but feel fun. I want to go back to Australia just for a moment. Yeah, tell us about life away from the diamond in Australia. It's it's a different culture for sure. Uh, it's more wild. It's I mean, we lived, we had a sweet setup. We were like a block away from the beach in this beautiful house. They, they really took care of us. Um, but looking back on it now, I'm, I'm mad at myself because I was 22 or 23, and we didn't do anything. Like, at now, I'm 28 years old now, but the person I am today, anytime, we, had, we played like three days a week and practiced once. But I would have been in, on the beach, or I would have been traveling to uh, Bali, or like there's a short, quick flight to Bali. I would have gone to the Outback, like... We didn't do anything. If our time off, we just like relaxed or lay on the beach. We played volleyball a lot. Um, but yeah, I kind of kick myself sometimes because I mean, I had a free played flight down there. It's two thousand dollars to get down there now. So it was fun though, a lot of fun. So after you have Tommy John surgery, explain the process of the next time that your stats show up on any of the websites I look at. You're with the Kansas City T-Bones. Explain the process of. I guess you got released by the Mariners and yeah. kind of what happens. We had uh, the the brass or whatever you can call them. Uh, the old brass, it was Chris Gwynn, um, mm-hmm. Tony Gwynn's brother. And he really liked me. Um, but then we got new, we got Andy McKay, who used to be the mental strength coach for the Rockies, took over as a field coordinator. And I've heard a lot of good things about him. He just didn't know me from Adam and um, saw me pitch two or three times. And I was 11 months out of surgery. And I did not feel normal until 17 months. I was pitching in 11 months, but I was kind of like your velocity, your stuff is all, it's all there, but you don't feel right. And I remember I pitched against the Rockies actually in a spring training game, and I think I gave up like five or six runs. Like it was just bad. I was all over the place, like throwing cookies. Like I didn't know what to do, and my elbow still didn't feel right. And they just kind of sat me down and like you know, I remember the guy that's, uh, I think he's like the traveling secretary now or something. He's he's from Kansas. He he sat me down. And he was like crying, being the in the office with me, and they. You know, they loved me, and I did. I was around the organization a while, and but they just didn't have a spot for me. And, you know, I didn't burn any bridges. I was like, you know, thank you so much for the opportunity, whatever. Um, so then it was time to time to find another job, and I still didn't feel normal, and no teams were really like, this kid's like not even a year out of Tommy John. Like, what? He's a free agent. He's got some decent numbers, but all in A ball. So I had to go play independent ball. And luckily it was in Kansas City, like where my parents were living at the time, and my girlfriend was at the time, and... Um, it was the most fun I've ever had in professional baseball. Why is that? It's just, it's how the game should be played. There's no politics. 
doesn't matter if you if you kick the ball to first base, if that's how you field it and you get everyone out, that's you're going to play. It didn't matter if you threw 79 miles an hour or 99 miles an hour. If you got people out, you were going to play. You know, it didn't matter if you were older or younger or how much money was invested in you or anything like that. And it was such a good group of guys and most, you know, 75%, 80% of them were in my shoes, like had just gotten released or come back from an injury. And we bonded together so well. And honestly, like the competition there was pretty good. Like it's just as good as double A in most, most of the teams. Some of the ballparks we played in were beautiful. And yeah, just looking back at it, that was a, that was a fun year, but it was a, it was a rehab year still. Mm-hmm. You know, I was starting, relieving, didn't feel right for a little bit, felt good. And then that Rocky scout saw me or called you or something. And I was, I'm a Rocky now. <laughs> what happened with that Rocky scout? So, um, so Mike Paul was my pitching coach in Seattle. And he's now an advanced major league scout for the Rockies. But he had seen David pitch in high desert when he was with the Mariners. And so I still keep in contact with Mike. And we talk pitching all the time and and the philosophy of of pitchers or pitching coaches back in the late 80s, early 90s versus now and how pitchers are different. So he would just call me and keep up with me. And he called me one day and he said, "Um, how's David doing? Because he knew David when David was a little kid because – I was playing, and he was my coach, and he'd haul, he held David. So he said, how's David doing? And I said, well, I said he's healthy. He's throwing the ball well, and uh, this is what his velocity is, and this is what his sinker's doing. And he just spent this, this summer um, rehabbing, and he said, great, I've seen him pitch. We really like him. And, uh, that's simple. That's simple. And the way, his, the way his sinker is and the way he gets ground balls would be a good fit in Denver. So let's, let's go ahead and get him. So... Uh, he had contacted the the Rockies and the minor league coordinator contacted David and signed. I was him. laying laying bricks in a driveway in Virginia. <laughs> really? Yeah, I was I was at my buddy's house. I didn't really have, you know, it's hard to find work that wants to hire you for two months out of the year, three months out of the year. My buddy had a landscaping company out in Virginia, and I flew out there. I was out there for almost a month, and I get this call from Denver and Zach Wilson and offered me a contract and. I don't even remember what he said, but he he said a number, and I was like, yeah, whatever. I got it. And having <laughs> He's going to play. Like, Let's go do it. My buddy's wife now was a – she's a financial, I don't know, CPA or something, and we went to her office, and she she printed it off real quick, signed it, and we faxed it back, and I did, I did it as fast as I could. And, uh, and then I, I flew home, and I drove straight down to Arizona, started training. What other off-season jobs do you have besides Brick Lane? Oh, my gosh. I've had – I worked at Home Depot a little bit last year. I was a bouncer at a bar last year in Arizona. That was tough. Um, I've I was like a part sorter. I've picked out little nuts and bolts, and I've laid uh, sided houses, roofed houses. Um, I've installed sprinklers. Uh, I've washed cars, <laughs> hand dried cars. Um, yeah, I mean it's it's, it's, it's tough yeah. to find a part time job. Yep, yeah, it is life of a minor leaguer. You don't make any money, and every off season you got to work. At that bouncer, because I was in Arizona again all off season, trying to you know make the most of it and train at a beautiful facility. And the only job I could find was working three day, three or four nights a week till four a.m. Bouncing people, kicking people out of the bar, <laughs> you know, and cleaning up puke. <laughs> and then I'd go wake up at eight in the morning, go work out, and you know sleep the rest of the day, and then wake up at eight thirty at night and go do it again. And it was barely any money, but it was enough to live on. And that's what a lot of these guys, like, and I'm not saying that I'm right or wrong or whatever, but some of these guys don't understand how good they have it or how blessed they are. And, like, there's guys you could tell they're just, like, they'll do anything. They'll they'll kill to be in the big leagues or whatever. And there's some guys that are just like, you know, I'm pretty good. Like, 
I flicked my wrist and it's 95, but, and I signed for, I got this millions of dollars in the bank account and I have this nice apartment. I don't have to worry about, you know, eating or anything like that. And the, the guys that have that cushion, but still have that fire and that passion that, and that talent, I think they're the ones that make it, but the guys are just like, whatever, you know, but I, I think I have more perspective and I'm a better, better man for sure because of the jobs I've had in the off season and how, how much more I appreciate just being able to throw a baseball and getting whatever, even if it's not that much money, getting a paycheck every couple of weeks just because I stand on that mound every couple of days and get to throw. You know, and it's it, it's I think it's good for players to do that. I think it helps them keep perspective and gives them hunger. You know, hunger. You know, Mickey Mantle said, "No, no rich kid ever got to the big leagues." And I don't know if that's right or wrong, but I'm just saying that 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 hunger and that fire has to be there. And as I as I grew up, when I first got married, we had we had nothing, and so the first uh, I I had crazy jobs. I dug graves. I was a bartender. I laid carpet. Did all these different things to to make ends meet. And you're a young married couple with uh, with a, starting a family, and we finally were put on the forty-man roster for the second year in a row, which means we got a third of the of the major league minimum. And the major league minimum at that time was sixty-two thousand five hundred a year. So we we were going to make twenty thousand dollars, and we were like, we are rich. Wow. It's all the money in the world, man. We can't believe how much money we have. And then and then sure enough, you know, we we got the big leagues, and then our, you know, for sixty-two thousand a year, our, our paychecks were night and day because i think like i said the first year i made 600 a month and i think our first year we were married i was 900 a month and trying to live off that and do that and so the minor leagues is a tough life and if you can grind it out and battle through it and keeps perspective and keep working you know there's going to be a payoff brian how have you balanced your pitcher you see stuff with your son you want to help him versus i don't want to get in the way of the pitching coach whose job it is to work with him I think, you know, David and I have a very good relationship. And um, as he said, you know, early on growing up, when I tried to tell him things, it was a dad telling a son. And so he wanted to listen, but he also wanted to do his own thing. Now, like, what do you know? Yeah, what do you know? You know, you know, you know, you know, so, and we come from this huge pitching family. So, and he said a couple of years ago, he said, you know, I just kick myself sometimes. I had my dad and my uncle and yeah. my step grandfather and all these guys that were, had all this knowledge of pitching. And he said, it's not that I didn't want to do it. It's just, I kind of want to learn it on my own and, and get better. Well, now, I had to, though. yeah, you had to. Now our conversations are, are so much fun about pitching. Because now it's just two pitchers talking. And, you know, I am dad, so I have a, a, a perspective. And sometimes i got to say, you know, you need to kick yourself in the rear and let's go and suck it up and move. But the other more times than not, it's about the philosophy of pitching and the things that you need to do on a daily basis to be a good pitcher. Uh, there's no such thing as, as not focusing every day and, and, and grinding through that and then setting up hitters and the things that you need to do and what do your eyes tell you. So we talk at, at a different level now of pitching, and it's a blast for me. I mean, to be able to talk to him about an outing, good, bad, or indifferent, and talk about pitch selection and counts and the hitters are facing and you know what the ball did. When I was in pro ball, we had no idea what a spin rate was. Yeah. We had no idea about launch angles. We didn't care. All we cared about was getting them out. That's all that mattered to us. And so my philosophy, I've always told him, get, get a ground ball in the first three pitches, and life as a pitcher is good. The perfect setup. We're recording this on, what's today, Saturday. So three days ago, David, you started five and a third innings, allowed three runs. And I made note of this. Let's see if I can find it. So you went five and five and one third innings. That means you got sixteen outs. Thirteen of them ground ball outs. Mm. So trying to teach him and that 
the, the, the hardest thing to teach a pitcher is not to fear contact. The contact is your friend if you get bad contact. You just you want to hit bats, you just don't want to hit barrels. And so pitchers who try to avoid contact either try to overthrow to miss bats or try to guide or aim to miss bats. You want to create a, a bad swing with a good pitch. And if you can do that early in the count and get a guy to uh, hit, a, hit a ground ball or, or a, a weak fly ball, the quicker you can get that guy out, the better. You don't want to go deep in counts. Well, it's like Max Scherzer came out the other day and he said, you know, one of the worst things people can say is like pitch to contact or whatever. He's like, I want to pitch for strikeouts, but I don't have Max Scherzer stuff. Not many people do at all. 99.9% of pitchers aren't Max Scherzer. So for me, especially as a starter or a long reliever or whatever, if I can get a guy out three, four pitches or less, I'm pitching way deeper into ball games. So for me, I, my sinker for some reason is better than the average sinker. So I, if I can throw it in the zone and down, I mean, you saw it. There was weak contact on it time after time. So yeah, I'm I'm trying to entice him. Like there's times when I'm trying to strike guys out, but if I can get you out in three pitches or less, like I'm, I've done my job. I want them to hit the ball with my sinker. You know. Let's talk about anniversaries. What anniversaries do you guys celebrate as a family? Oh, man. Well, obviously the, the normal ones, uh, birthdays and marriage anniversaries, all those things. But I think uh, for me personally, um, the day that David fell off a chairlift was our wedding anniversary. It was 13th wedding, so February 15th. The next, the next day, or sorry, the next after our wedding anniversary, the following year, on our anniversary, we took David and made him get on the chairlift and go back yeah. up to the top of the ski. A year lift. and a day later. A year and a day later, we took him back up and Somebody said, on that same "You're gonna, oh, you're really? gonna do this. Yeah. You're not gonna be fearful of of what happened." And so, we always say that very same thing. This was this was David's day <laughs> right. where he had to get back on the saddle and do it. And I think that that for anything in life, whether you fail as a, as an athlete or or something crazy in life, you have to you have to get crawl back up and keep going every time no matter what happens. And that was that for day for him that we made him go back up. And he was a little scared, but we put him between us and we rode up there and did it. So whether you get the crud beat out of you on the mound or not, you just still got to go out and take the mound every day. What about the anniversary of the almost perfect game? So I laugh. Text him about that yeah, game, we, we text about that, you know, and, and uh, we, we text back and forth and say that. And I, and I laugh because we were doing an interview the other day and I said, you know, April 20th, there are some. Uh, I'm. It was Adolf Hitler's birthday, and it's National Marijuana Day as well. So, <laughs> so we don't. You know, it's just another date. But um, you know, we celebrate that. The other day that I think is kind of funny is the the day that we got traded uh, on on May 25th. I think it was the day we got traded that Randy and I got traded to Seattle. I'll text Dave Dombrowski every every May 25th and say, "You know what the day is, Dave?" <laughs> and he'll just laugh. Well, worst trade of my life, you know. But um. Uh, but I think that every day now in our in our house, honestly, is a is a special day because when you've gone through everything we've gone through as a family, and to get here and go watch watch your son pitch, knowing all that he's gone through in, as a young man and as a as a player, it's a special it's a special moment for us. Well, I've read that you are a collector of baseball memorabilia, and while I couldn't find the card that you autographed for me when I was a kid, I did find something that I wanted to give to you. As a thank you for joining me, and this is the 1945 World Series program. Oh my program. gosh! Look at that. That is amazing. Thank you. You're welcome. That's incredible. I love. I love this. This is so. It's great. only like eight pages because it's 1945. Oh yeah, it <laughs> is it's so great. Cool. Oh yeah, incredible. You see his baseball room. Really? What's it like? 
So I've got, I've just, uh, this, thank you. This is really, really awesome. I love it. That'll be framed and be on my wall as soon as I can possibly get home. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, I've just always been fascinated with the game of baseball. Uh, from the time I was growing up, I, it I mean, really. It also gave you everything you yeah. known. You know, growing you up, I grew up in a, stamps and a, you know, bad alcoholic home, and baseball was my life growing up. And so the history of the game and what it did for me as a kid and, and what it gave me and what I was able to give my family through it. The, the game of baseball is special uh, in the Holman family. And so I have a memorabilia room that's full of antique memorabilia. I've got some of my own stuff, and I collect a lot of his stuff, and I'm keeping it all for him. But baseballs and just neat things from 1920s and 30s and stuff, because the history of baseball, when you go back, you know, I'd watch Ken Burns' history of baseball every day and never be tired of it. Because it, but baseball permeates so much of society, and you can go back in the 30s and the 40s and the 50s and the 20s, and what was going on in the world or the United States at the time, baseball was still part of it. And uh, look, it's a f- look at September 11th when yeah. George Bush threw out the first pitch after that happened. People, I mean, after that, the World Series after yeah. 9/11, and you know, New York and the whole world, whole, whole country was united, and baseball's done that throughout the history of the game. And so it's special, and, and we're very blessed and, and fortunate to have been able to play the game at the level we played, and I just collect memorabilia from it. So I walk in the room, and it's just, I love it, the, the history of, of the game. Yeah, a lot of old baseballs. That's favorite thing. Yeah, old baseballs from I like sign. I mean, he has got, he's got cool autographs and stuff, but, I mean, that one, the, the one with the... Indian headdress on mm-hmm. it. I love those ones. So I've got baseballs from pre-1930s with, I don't know if you knew that, but baseballs before 1935 had multicolored laces. Really? Red and blue or green and red or black and red and um, incredible old vintage baseballs. And then after 1935, they decided to go to all red laces. And so, you know, Reach was the American League ball. Spalding was the National League ball. And then later on, they became Spalding and later they became Rawlings. And now Rawlings is the maker of all baseball. So lots of history of the baseball, and and so I love that stuff. It'll all be his one day, so he'll get to he'll get to display it. But it's a it's a great fun passion uh, of uh, collecting. All right, guys, thank you so much for your time. This was awesome. Um, I really really appreciate it. Oh, that's our pleasure. Thanks Happy for having here. us. And with your wife Jamie yeah. and your dog Winston, yes. quietly and sometimes not so quietly, yeah. <laughs> hanging out with us. This was really fun. Thank you again. Safe thank travels you. home. Thank you very thank much for you. having us. This is life around the seams. Thank you.